Our text this morning will be 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 17 through 22. And if you're using a pew Bible, a Bible from the back, you can find that on page 1019. Again, that's page 1019. These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boast of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom. But they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first for it would have been better for them to for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them what the true proverb says has happened to them the dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire May God bless the preaching of his word. If you will turn in your Bibles, please, to Second Peter while you're there. I don't know why I keep saying that. I did that two weeks ago. Let's stay there. That's the way I should put it. Uh, just before I uh, begin to preach this sermon this morning, I do want to a word of encouragement for the parents of high schoolers uh, with the help of Jeremy Bennett, who served me so well the last uh, couple of times that I've done Teen Sunday. He has uh, secured and obtained from us a brief video done by Matt Chandler, who pastors down the um, Dallas area, uh, on the program called Wretched. Some of you maybe have seen Wretched. It's a It's an apologetic kind of program that helps us defend the Christian faith. In this particular case, he's going to be dealing with um, young people and how they have been called to greater things than merely technology, um, iPhones, iPads, laptops, and so forth, which can be such a distraction and such a form of bondage. He's going to offer ten life lessons for teens and seven things that won't be cool in 20 years. So I think it will be beneficial, and I hope to see your high school kids today. Until we get a uh, clock on the back wall... I'm going to um, be benefited by the one on my iPhone. 
Now, the title of my sermon, if you happen to have noticed the e-bulletin this weekend, is very simply, How to Know the Savior and Still Go to Hell. The method of knowing Christ as Savior and still going to hell is actually quite simple. It's as simple as this. Just sit under the ministry of a false prophet or a false teacher, have a superficial conversion, come to superficial knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, temporarily escape the defilements of the world, and then get entangled again in those same defilements until you are overcome by them, and then turn away from what you know to be true and abandon Christianity altogether. Go back to the filth and the vileness of your former sins like a dog returns to its vomit. Go back to the slavery of your former sins like a pig washed goes back to wallowing in a mud hole. And you will be worse off than you were before. You will, as a professed Christian, suddenly enter into a hopeless spiritual condition. You will never again be able to be truly saved. God will have given you over to yourself. You will be God-forsaken for the rest of your life and for all of eternity. You will have become a full-fledged apostate. And you will be certain for hell. That is how to know the Savior and still go to hell. And that is what our passage in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 17 through 22 is all about. It all starts with coming under the soul-damning influence of sitting under the ministry of a false prophet or a false teacher. But let me make this even clearer and perhaps a bit more scary. The false prophet and the false teacher of whom I'm speaking this morning is actually a wonderful man. He's a seminary graduate. He has usually a huge church. He's written a number of books. And he has one of the most attractive personalities you could ever imagine. He's someone you're compelled to listen to and to follow. That's the kind of false prophet I'm talking about. And I'm suggesting again that it all starts by sitting under just such a reverend, the wrong kind of pastor. It all starts by sitting under the teaching and preaching of pastor pleaser. Reverend, ruin your soul. Father, feel good. Shepherd seduction, elder enticement. Now, we may feel that we've heard enough about false prophets and false teachers in the last several weeks, but obviously we haven't. 
because the stakes are so high and just because becoming a false convert is so easy and because you can actually know the Savior in a certain way and still go to hell and because apostasy is something very, very real, Peter is determined to say more to us about false prophets. And he writes, I think, in a sense, as not only a concern, but an angry pastor. He's compelled by the Holy Spirit to give us further warnings. And so I invite you to look with me at these last six verses of chapter 2. And just before we do, actually I want you to notice how verse 21 of chapter 1 ends. It says, but men spoke from God. And then notice immediately the contrast in verse 1 of chapter 2. Men spoke from God, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. So during the Old Testament days, true men of God spoke, and so did false prophets. And Peter writes and says, and they're going to continue to speak. Now I want to give you just a very brief, hasty theology of false prophets and false teachers and how to recognize them. There are three things. There's three ways to test a prophet to see whether he be true or false. The first is to look at his method. The second is to look at his teaching. And the third is to look at his fruit. And when we apply those tests, we see that the method of a false prophet is rooted in deception. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 and following, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And then he tells us, By their fruits you shall know them which means that we have to be fruit inspectors. But I want you to hear Jesus say, beware of them because they deceive their followers. They dress up in sheep's clothing. But in fact, they're wolves. Feel the danger of deception. And hear our Savior say that the way you'll know whether they're true or false is by the fruit they produce. And that fruit is produced through their teaching. I won't take time now to turn us to the pivotal passage that's already been quoted in this series from Deuteronomy chapter 13, where God says, if a false prophet rises up among you and performs a miracle, don't just follow him. Listen to what he's saying. And if he says, in the midst of all of his miracle working power, let's go after other gods, kill him. He's a false prophet. It makes no difference whether he can do miracles. And our Savior himself said that in the day of judgment, there will be many, many, not a few, many false prophets who preached in the name of Jesus who are going to be cast into hell. So appreciate especially the aspect of deception with regard to their methodology. And let me just quickly show you in verse 1 how many times Peter comes back to this notion of deception. It says, But false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will, notice the next word, secretly. 
secretly. Bring in destructive heresies. Look at verse 3. And in their greed, that's what motivates many of them, they will exploit you. How do you like to be exploited? Exploitation is a sinister endeavor on the part of anyone who does it. And how do they exploit? With false words. Notice verse 13. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions. Notice verse 14. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They entice. And then please notice verse 18. It's in our text. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions and so forth. The deception of false prophets is something we need to be very, very wary of. But how can I know that their teaching and preaching is false, you may be asking. The answer is really quite simple. Again, it's by the stuff they teach and preach. It's especially by their doctrine of salvation. For example, if they're preaching a salvation by works as opposed to grace, you know they're false prophets. If they're preaching a salvation by grace plus works, you know that they're false prophets because you can't add works to grace and grace remain grace. If they're teaching a salvation that works to make you healthy and wealthy, and that's the main thrust of the message, that God wants you to be prosperous, you can know that they're false prophets. But the one that I really want you to think about is this. If they preach a salvation that produces no works, that is to say, no changed living, if they teach that no works are even needed after conversion and that you can continue to live in sin, you can have your cake and eat it too, as the old expression goes, then you know that they're false prophets. Continuing in sin is acceptable under this kind of teaching. They would say that it causes grace to abound. They give exactly the opposite answer to Paul's question. So shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And they say, yes. It's a licentious gospel. And it's found even among evangelicals and Bible-believing people, not just liberals. It's a gospel about freedom. But it's a convoluted gospel about freedom. It isn't freedom from the power and bondage of sin. It's freedom to sin. And their favorite verse in their favorite hymn is free from the law, oh blessed condition. Sin all I want and still have remission. That's their gospel. Sin isn't an issue. And so... The true gospel is convoluted. It is turned upside down. It's turned inside out. And as I just said, it is about freedom to sin and not about freedom from sin. And that's what this passage that we're looking at this morning is all about. So let's dive into it. 
And let me break it down very, very simply and uh, just point out to you that I think there are five things that are happening, and I'm just going to mention four of them very quickly and very briefly, well, at least three of them very quickly and briefly, and I'll spend a little more time on two of them. And we we could look at it this way. We're first told what they are. Jason read it to us in verse 17. They're waterless springs. They're mists driven by a storm. Have you ever been really, really thirsty and you went to where you hoped you were going to get something refreshing to drink and there was nothing there? How about if you were a traveler and you heard that there was a spring on the mountain and that it was full of cold, refreshing water and you got there and it was dry? What if you were a farmer and your grounds was part, were parched and you were hoping and praying that rain would come and it looked like there were rain clouds coming, but they were just mists blown away by the storm. They didn't deliver what they promised and false prophets never deliver what they promised. They can't satisfy the souls of their hearers. And in the second place, we see where they're headed. That's in verse 17 as well. It's in the latter part. It says, For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Remember verse 4 of this chapter, speaking about the angels that were cast out of heaven. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness. And Jude speaks of the same thing in his little letter. They're headed for hell. That's where headed. they're headed. Now, what is it that they do? And I want to spend just a little more time with this. What they do is seen in verse 18, the first part. In a kind of loudmouth, boastful, arrogant, self-confident way, here's what they do. They entice. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh. They use the fallenness of their hearers and their natural fallen passions and they appeal to those passions, especially the sensual passions. And this is something we see again repeatedly in this chapter. We saw it again back in verse 2. And many will follow their sensuality. Notice that word. Look at verse 7, speaking of the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if he, God, rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. Notice 10, verse 10, the first part of it. And especially those who indulge in the lusts of defiling passion. And then notice verse 14. They have eyes, speaking of these false prophets, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. And then again, verse 18, which I've spoken of. They entice by sensual passions. This is common to false prophets. It isn't the only kind of false prophet, but it's a very dangerous kind of false prophet, especially in our day. This person is motivated by greed, as we've already seen, but is also motivated by lust. We just read that they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. And they, they prey upon the sinful inclinations of 
their hearers' flesh. And they construct a theology, a theology of sensuality. It's a, it, at the end of the day, it's a theological justification for sensual gratification. That's the way I would put it. These false prophets have constructed from the Bible and out of their own imaginations a justification, a theological justification for sensual gratification. And that's where the whole thing becomes so convoluted. Because at the end of the day, the message they're preaching is this. You can have God and the world. You can have holiness and sin. You can have forgiveness and lust. You can have it all. It isn't an either or. It's a both and. And this theology of the gospel can be very, very subtle. And as I said, it's not just something preached by liberals. It finds its way even into evangelical circles. I remember when I was taught and embraced as the truth a teaching called the carnal Christian theory. Some of you know what I'm speaking of. It was made very popular in those years, several decades ago, by Campus Crusade for Christ, actually. And thankfully, they did away with that kind of literature. And the idea was that there are spiritual Christians and there are carnal Christians, and carnal Christians are dominated by their carnality and their flesh. They're just not growing in grace. They're not holy. They don't have a hot pursuit for godliness. They're very fleshly. And the sad thing is that when they get to heaven, as they surely will, um, maybe by the skin of their teeth, but as they surely will, they're just going to miss out on a lot of rewards. You know, as one pastor friend put it, they're not going to be living on 1st Street. 15th Street will be good enough. They get there. And that whole carnal Christian theory, wrongly interpreting one of Paul's letters, the letter to Corinthians, justified the idea of being under the dominating power of the flesh and still being completely confident that you're going to go to heaven. When the same apostle said, to be fleshly minded is death. That same theory also separated the saviorhood and the lordship of Jesus Christ and and said, in effect, that you can come to Jesus as your savior without really submitting to him as your lord. He would like you to submit to him as your lord. He would like you to come under his sovereign rule and leadership, but that's not essential. If you're trusting him for your sins, maybe someday you'll be so moved to bow down to him as your lord. And you know what? I believed it because I was taught it by intelligent people who actually meant well. And I'm testifying to you this morning that I found sanctuary behind that teaching. I literally did. I lived in a lot of sin but didn't fear for the state of my soul because I knew that I was at least going to make it to heaven. I didn't really care about losing the rewards, because heaven's still going to be heaven. And all I'm doing is taking a moment to demonstrate how dangerous theological error can be in terms of the way we live. And of course it appeals to our flesh to be told, 
You don't have to be radically changed if you're a Christian. You don't have to live a life of obedience. You don't have to be making progress in holiness. You don't have to experience progress in your sanctification. Just come to Jesus, get asbestosized, so to speak, with regard to hell, and go ahead and live your Christian life. Yes, it would be nice if you tried to be more godly, but it isn't necessary. What do you think happens when even true Christians hear that? There's enough remaining sin in all of us that we take advantage of that. We want to hear that. That's encouraging. There's a part of us that doesn't like it because God is in us and the Holy Spirit is pushing us in a different direction, but the remaining sin and corruption listens and says, wouldn't that be great? Maybe that is true. I hope it is true. I want to listen to more of this. Our own human nature. And these false prophets, dear brothers and sisters, they're exploiting their followers in that regard. That's what I want you to appreciate. They're deceptive. They're exploiters. They're enticers. They're seductionists. They're, they take the clay of theology and they mold it into a gospel that is not the true and pure gospel of God's word. And they produce false converts deceived souls who know the Savior and who have experienced some outward temporary deliverance from the defilements of this world, but who, because they haven't been changed at the root of their being and nature, soon find themselves again entangled in the defilements of the world and overcome by them and so overcome by them that they say, you know what? I don't believe Christianity anymore. I'm done with it. It really didn't work. It didn't really satisfy the deepest needs of my soul. I find satisfaction in these sins. And they go back and they're overwhelmed and they reject Christianity and they bring themselves into a spiritual condition that is, listen to me, hopeless. Absolutely hopeless. Irretrievable. This isn't a Christian stumbling or falling into sin and needing to be spiritually recovered. This is a false convert who eventually knows that Christianity is true and rejects the whole thing and becomes what the Bible calls an apostate. Listen, there is such a thing as apostasy. A true Christian cannot fall into it. But a professed Christian can. And if any of us ever become apostates, biblically speaking, it's over. It's over. The Bible says it's over. And just before I conclude, I will show you a couple of texts in that regard. So this is what they do. And they take advantage of the subtlety of their teaching. And they take advantage of deception. Three forms of deceitfulness somehow converge. The deceitfulness of our own hearts. Do you know your heart to be deceptive? The deceitfulness of the false prophet himself. We've already read how they deceive and they entice. And then you add to that the deceitfulness of the devil himself. And when those three powers of deceitfulness come together, woe be to the person who's experiencing it. But what I'm saying is that the devil, especially through false prophets, uses 
a tinkered with, refabricated gospel that allows for sensuality to be an okay thing. Sinful sensuality. I should probably clarify. God made us sensual beings. We have five senses. They're wonderful. They're gifts from God. We're supposed to be sensual. We're just not supposed to be sinfully sensual. And the false prophet comes along and says, I can show you how you can be forgiven, still be a Christian, know the Lord, and engage in all of the forbidden sensuality you want. Can't you see how that would cause a man to get a big following, especially among people that are not truly born again? There's enough sin in our own flesh, as I said before, that would, that would for a moment be, I, I wish that were true. At least my sinful flesh wishes that were true. So see the combination. Motivated by greed, teaching and preaching a gospel that allows sensuality, and putting those two things together. And it's, it's a work of the devil, and he uses such men. <coughs> I was talking to Jonathan about this last evening. <coughs> Excuse me. And he reminded me of Lewis's screw tape letters, and uh, of one in particular. For those of you who don't know this, this very interesting and helpful work, um, C.S. Lewis created this fictional dialogue between... Um, a high-ranking devil or demon called Screwtape who wrote letters to his nephew, Wormwood. Wormwood's assignment was to, to take a certain British citizen to hell. That was, that was his personal assignment. And once that man became a Christian, he had to redirect all of his energies to, to do as much damage to his Christian life as possible. So... Screwtape writes letters to his nephew. And with regard to pleasure, listen to what this high-ranking demon says to the lower-ranking, the junior demon. And when you hear the word enemy, it is in capital E. When, when Screwtape, Screwtape speaks of our enemy, who do you think he's talking about? God. And when he uses the personal pronoun his, he's talking about God. And at the end of this little thing, he talks about our father. He's talking about the devil. Okay, so I've given you kind of a clue. Here we go. It's, it's not long. Never forget, says Screwtape to Wormwood, when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. I know we have won many a soul on pleasure. All the same, it is his, our enemy's invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that in which it is least natural, least aromatic of its maker, capital M. 
and least pleasurable. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-demanding pleasure is the formula. It is more certain and it's better style. To get the man's soul and to give him nothing in return. That is what really gladdens our father's heart. The devil. What's Lewis talking about? He's saying to Wormwood, and this is satanic methodology. What we've got to do is take the pleasures that that God has legitimately created and the passions that he's put in the souls of men, which in and of themselves are good, and we've got to get them to exercise those passions in an unlawful way. That will bring pleasure to the devil. That will destroy the soul. That will make one addicted and find himself or herself ever less satisfied. That's what we'll do. And all I'm saying to you is, can you see how the devil would use a false prophet? Do you see? The devil encourages false prophets to develop theologies which let you have your cake and eat it too. Which let you have forgiveness and still enjoy the pleasures of sin. That's what this passage is about. That's what this passage is about. That isn't what... All false prophets do. False prophets fight on many different fronts. That's what Peter's talking about in this text. That's why he keeps talking about, especially in verse 18. Speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh. Those that are barely escaping. Now I want to quickly come to my fourth and fifth and spend less time. I want you to notice who they prey upon. It's there in verse 18. It's in the second part of verse 18. So we've seen what they are. They're waterless springs. Where they're headed, they're headed for glooms of, uh, um, they're headed for the gloom of utter darkness. What they do, they entice. Who do they entice? So here's where it gets very real for all of us who are gathered here today. Because you can say, you know what? A, I don't live under a false prophet. And B, I'm a Christian. So this isn't a problem. These false prophets, surely they're just trying to destroy non-Christians, aren't they? Look at the text. Look at verse 18. It says, They entice by sensual passions of the flesh. Here we go. Those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Have you ever felt that way? Your experience and my experience should almost illuminate that phrase. Say, wow, I know what that's talking about. That's talking about me. Because I feel my whole life is like barely escaping from those who are still in error. Oh, God, I'm just escaping by the skin of my teeth. Give me a greater deliverance. And Peter says, guess what? False prophets entice with sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who are in error. And if that isn't enough to convince you that this is about us, then go back to verse 14, which Pastor Keith touched upon last week. He speaks of those false prophets and says, They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice what are the next two words? 
unsteady souls. See, these guys are looking for the young Christians. They're looking for immature Christians. They're looking for those who are not strong. And guess what? They never really give up, no matter how strong you are. Because no matter how strong you are, sometimes you're still weak. So this is about us. You know, maybe you have been tempted to say, okay, enough is enough. Don't ever say that. You're talking about God's word. Now, if we spent a whole week on every sermon, you'd have a right to say that, or I mean, every verse or every word, you'd have a right to say that about us. We're going through this, this epistles actually quite rapidly. Interesting. Some people want us to go faster. Some people want us to go slower. It's the old problem. You just can't satisfy everybody all at the same time. We're trying to kind of strike a, a medium here. But if you're if you're prone to say, I don't think this is that practical for me because I'm sitting under men who are not false prophets or false teachers, and besides I'm a Christian, then remember this, that you don't know for sure where you're going to be 10 years from now. You don't know where your kids are going to be. You need to teach them about false prophets. We need to understand false prophets. And you may need to sit down with your television and go to the to the religious channels and watch some of the men as painful as it can be and say to your little children, your young children, as they can understand, did you hear what he just said, sweetheart? Son, did you hear that? Look what he's trying to do. He's trying to make people become Christians so they can get rich. Teach them about the enticement of false prophets. It's real. It's very real. It's real in Owensboro. It's real in Newburgh. It's real in Evansville. It's real all over the world. And it's especially real in third world countries where mission causes are taking full advantage of this principle, especially the health and wealth false prophets. And it's a travesty. So see who they're preying on. But here's what I want to conclude with. What are they and their followers going to experience? So you see the outline? It's really, again, it's simple. What are they, their waterless springs? Where are they headed for the gloom of utter darkness? What are they doing? They're enticing by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping. How do they do it? By promising freedom. I didn't really press on this, but notice verse 19. It's interesting. The false prophets promise their hearers freedom. You can do all this stuff. You can do this and still be a Christian. It's going to be okay. But they themselves are slaves of corruption. And then just a little proverb for whatever overcomes a person, to that he's enslaved. We would all agree with that. But what is it that these false prophets and their followers will experience? What is it that perhaps some in this room right now and others watching via live stream may yet experience? It's absolutely fearful. It's horrifying. The answer is found in verses 20 and 21 and 22. Here's what's going to happen eventually. These people, their false prophet teachers, and they 
have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They have. They have in a superficial, temporary kind of way. But if they, the middle of verse 20, are again, again entangled in them, what's them? The defilements of the world. The sins of their former life. If they are again entangled in them and overcome. It doesn't say if they sometimes fall back into that sin. We all do. These are strong words. Entangled in them. Overcome by them. And he's not done describing such people anyway. He says the last state has become worse for them than the first. It would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness, to never have professed faith, to never have heard the gospel, than after knowing it and turning back from the holy commandment. That would just be a general shorthand way of speaking of the whole of God's word, especially in the Old Testament, which, which produces true holiness in those who live by its standards. Turning back from the holy commandment, Deliver to them. And then he goes on to say, here's what, here's what happens to such people. It's just like Proverbs 26, 11. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing himself, returns to wallow in the mire. You know, that's one of those texts that you just really don't really want to talk about. And you, you certainly wouldn't be very wise to, to be graphic in, in explaining particularly the dog and the vomit. But have you ever seen a dog eat its vomit? If you've lived long enough, you have. And Bunyan, whom I'm going to quote in a moment if I can remember, says that when, when a dog vomits, the only reason it's really vomiting is because it's whatever he or she ate caused pain in its stomach and it's just got to get rid of it. It wasn't because there was anything particularly distasteful in the whatever was eaten to begin with or he wouldn't have eaten it. But it's causing me problems. That's, that sin is... Uh, I wish I hadn't committed that sin. It's not that I hate that sin, but that sin has really caused me some problems here. I'm going to have to get rid of that thing. And then you get rid of it. Oh, I'm feeling good now. But you never really hated the sin. So what you do is you go right back to it like a dog and you eat the vomit of that sin again. Because you never really were given by God a genuine, holy distaste for the sin itself. It's a scary proverb. And Peter says... No, it illustrates the apostate. That's what an apostate is. That's what a person who knows the Savior in a superficial way and has temporarily escaped the defilements of the world but wasn't genuinely born again and truly converted does. They go back to the sin that they thought they didn't want to commit anymore and says, you know, it's looking better than it ever looked. And they get entangled in it. This isn't a temporary fall. This isn't the backsliding of a true Christian. I'm going to say it again. This is a spurious, false Christian, a deceived professor returning to the former way of life because he was never changed at the root of his being. And they go back and they're entangled and they're overcome with it. And then they look at the whole Christianity thing and say, I know it's real deep down in my soul, but I don't want it. I'm done with it. And God says, oh, well, guess what? 
I'm done with you. Not because I don't have the omnipotence to change you, but because I'm too just and too holy. You are an apostate. You are like a dog returning to its vomit. You are like a pig that's washed going back to its mud. I'm done. It would have been better for you never to have professed faith. I heard a preacher one time say that if you're going to listen to the gospel, and he was making a little different point, but if you're going to listen to the gospel and reject it and you understand what it is, then he says, get on a plane and fly to Africa. Get on a bus and go to the remotest city. Get on a jeep and go to the furthest village. Get on a donkey and go out in the middle of the forest and dig a hole and get in that hole and die there because you're going to go to hell. And the more you stay involved with the truth, the more light that you reject, the hotter hell will be. The principle transcends. If we reject the light and truth of the gospel and turn our back on it, knowing it to be true, and prove ourselves to be apostates, it really would have been better for us never to have professed faith to begin with we will be putting ourselves in a hopeless, irretrievable situation. Let me just quickly show you Matthew 12. There are other passages. This whole thing deserves probably two or three sermons or several studies. But Matthew 12, just please notice this. This is what happens to the person who experiences this, and it could be some of you. Matthew 12, 43 through 45 Jesus is speaking in sort of parabolic language. He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house. That's the person who experienced a superficial reformation. I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Huh, that guy's really become a Christian, hasn't he? Look how changed his life is. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. And then Jesus applies that in a very generic way to the whole generation. Listen to the apostle to the Hebrews. I'll tell you the text after I've read it because I want to save you turning from it. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, see knowledge, there's a knowledge and there's a knowledge. If you don't get anything else, get this. There's a knowledge and there's a knowledge. There's a faith and there's a faith. There's a repentance and there's a repentance. What am I talking about? I'm saying you can have a certain knowledge and go straight to hell. You have another knowledge and you're truly converted. You can have a certain repentance, a certain sorrow and remorse for sin, and you can have deep godly sorrow and be saved. This text is talking as Peter was talking about a kind of knowledge that falls short of true conversion. And the apostle to the Hebrew says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And he goes on to explain the hopelessness of an apostate. Now, one more little clarification. Am I teaching that a true Christian can fall from grace? No, no, no. Is it possible for a true Christian to fall from grace? No, no, 
No. Is it possible to be a professed Christian and not have the real thing and fall away and turn from it and become hopelessly an enemy of the gospel? Yes, yes, yes. It's called apostasy. So it's sobering. We've got to think about this. We have to persevere. All that truly know the Lord will persevere. But we still have to persevere. And the greatest evidence that we truly do know the Lord is that we are persevering. We have received the Holy Commandment. We're not turning it away. We're not rejecting the Holy Commandment. We love the Holy Commandment. And again, the Holy Commandment is just God's call to become like Him. Not in order to receive forgiveness, but because we have received forgiveness. The greatest desire of a true Christian is to be like his Savior. The greatest hope of a true Christian is to be made sinless. And someday we will. But if you ever prove that you don't have that longing, that desire, and that you really don't want it after all, you are not saved. And if you turn as an enemy against all of that, you will be an apostate and there's absolutely no hope for you whatsoever. This, with this I do conclude. These are the words of Bunyan who pictured the condition of, a, of an apostate in his Pilgrim's Progress. Those of you who are familiar know that at a certain point he went to the home of a man called Interpreter who wanted to show him seven things before he went on his journey. And this is one. He showed him the man in the iron cage. He said, stay until I've showed you a little more. And after that, you shall go the, on your way. So he took him by the hand again and led him into a very dark room where there sat a man in an iron cage. Now the man to look on seemed very sad. He sat with his eyes looking down to the ground, his hands folded together, and he sighed as if he would break his heart. Then said Christian, what means this? At which the interpreter bid him talk with the man. Then he said to the man, what art thou? The man answered, I am what I was not once. What were you once? The man said, I was once a fair and flourishing professor. Both in mine own eyes and also in the eyes of others, I once was, as I thought, fair for the celestial city and had then even joy at the thought that I should get there. Well, but what are you now? I am now a man of despair. I am shut up in it. As in this iron cage, I cannot get out. Oh, no, I cannot. But how came you in this condition? I left off to watch and be sober. I laid the reins upon the neck of my lust. I sinned against the light of the word and the goodness of God. I grieved the spirit and he is gone. I tempted the devil and he has come to me. I have provoked God to anger and he has left me. I have so hardened my heart that I cannot repent. Then said Christian to the interpreter, But is there no hope for such a man as this? Ask him, said the interpreter. Then said Christian, Is there no hope but you must be kept in the iron cage of despair? No, none at all. Why? The Son of Man is very pitiful. I have crucified him to myself afresh. I have despised his person. I have despised his righteousness. I have counted his blood an unholy thing. I have done despite to the Spirit of grace. Therefore, I have shut myself out of all the promises. And now there remains for me nothing but threatenings, dreadful threatenings, fearful threatenings of certain judgment and fire indignation. 
which shall devour me as an adversary. For what did you bring yourself into this condition? For the lusts, pleasures, and profits of this world, in the enjoyment of which I did then promise myself much delight, but now every one of those things also bite me and gnaw me like a burning worm. But can't you now repent and turn? God has denied me repentance. His word gives me no encouragement to believe. Words like 1 Peter 2, 20 through 22. Words like Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. Words like Hebrews 10. Yea, himself has shut me up in this iron cage. Nor can all the men in the world let me out. Oh, eternity, eternity, how shall I grapple with the misery that I must meet with in eternity? This is not a Christian falling from grace. This is an apostate who listened to the gospel of a false prophet who wasn't truly converted but became an enemy of the gospel that he really once knew to be true. Tell me it's not a serious thing to be a Christian. Tell me it's, it's not a serious matter of whether or not we grow in grace. Do we keep God's law in order to be forgiven or justified? No. We keep God's law because he wrote it on our hearts and we love it. We have received the holy commandment. We love it. We want it written more deeply on our hearts. Because we want to be like Christ. Is that you? It can be. He is the true prophet. I want to end with that. He is the true prophet. He is the final prophet. And as the final and true prophet, he also came to be a priest and to die for our sins. And if you flee to him and ask him to pay for your sins by his horrible death on the cross, he will. And he will give you his righteousness. And he will change you on the inside permanently. And you will never, ever become an apostate. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this sobering passage. And we know that, again, we've only scratched the surface of it. We thank you that you have told us how to identify false prophets. We thank you for warning us about false prophets. Help us to be discerning. Help us to teach our children and our friends to be discerning. Help us to flee from such men and such teaching and such books. And help us to follow the true prophet, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And help us to have the evidence that we are really following him because he becomes more and more precious to us. And though we can't see it in our Selves, but others can. We become more like the true prophet. Pursue this word in our hearts and our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.